Hello there, this is Guru talking to you about Anchor.fm. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First off, it's completely free. Second, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast as well with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ballistic Podcast live from San Jose, California. I'm your co-host, Guru Ramprakash, and uh, joining me as usual from Monterey over Skype is my good friend and co-host, Vikram Kanth. Vikram, how are you doing, and uh, how how has this week been for you, uh, basketball-wise and life-wise? Dude, it's been super, super busy, but, you know, that's uh, that's what I'm saying, man. But it's been a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and even even my life has been busy, and just like just finding time to do this podcast is is becoming difficult. But like we both of us enjoy doing it, and uh, that's why we always seem to find time um, Sunday nights to you know get together and talk some hoops. I always have a great time, dude. Absolutely, man. It's been really solid. Yeah, and uh, so with that, we're basically going to go into the conference finals and talk about that since we we got done pr- pretty much talking about all the semifinal series is um uh last last episode so we're gonna go and talk about the conference finals and it's it's sort of a perfect segue in a way and then after we talk about the conference finals we do want to get into the draft lottery and what happened on uh that fateful night and um yeah we're obviously going to talk winners and losers and some some of the players we like but uh first let's go let's talk about uh the uh western conference finals we'll start off with that and of course the western conference finals uh it consists of these two teams the blazers going up against the warriors so obviously the warriors had home court going into the series and uh in game one uh the blazers uh, struggled to find their footing probably because they had just finished an emotional game seven in denver on on sunday and had to fly directly to um oakland for a tuesday night game and you could tell they they were they were tired and they were not really mentally prepared for the series because they kept leaving steph curry open for threes off the pick and roll which is sort of inexplicable but i guess i guess that is their excuse and um CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard didn't really play well in that game, and Klay um, Thompson and Steph Curry were were hitting their threes for the most part, and they uh, were able to ca- carry that momentum into winning Game One. Uh, in Game Two, um, the Blazers came out with more energy and were and were up by I believe 15 points in the first in the first half. That's pretty. I think that was the halftime deficit for the Warriors, and the Warriors looked to be in a little bit of trouble, and the Blazers looked like they had recovered from their Game One defeat however uh the second half was a completely different story and um we'll go into that because the same theme pretty much occurred in game three but in the second half the warriors had their their flurry in the third quarter and that pretty much uh brought them back into the game and uh the blazers they they did take a little bit of a lead in that fourth quarter i believe they were up by eight but they were pretty much unable to stop the Warriors when they once they went on their run, and it, it's pre- basically because of the defense defensive pressure they're putting on Damian Lillard and um, his inability to be involved in the game 
has really affected them, uh, affected the Blazers rather late in games. And it's pretty much a credit to Draymond Green and Andre Iguodala, really, mostly Draymond Green. But but yeah, that's how the Warriors pretty much took game two and uh, were able to preserve home court. And then going into game three, uh, it's in the Moda Center in Portland. They're loud, they're raucous. And uh, they're, they they at least want to take a game and make it a series, and it looked that way in the first uh, in the first half. Um, Myers Leonard was the leading scorer for the Blazers, which I mean, you could either take it as a good thing or a bad thing. It's a it's a good thing because Lillard and McCollum aren't even getting involved in the game, and they're still uh, up by double digits. But you have to worry about Myers Leonard being the leading scorer as well, and that sort of came back to bite the Blazers in the second half of that game where the Warriors again made a comeback. Draymond Green pretty much played, uh, had an all-star performance throughout the entire game, kept the Warriors afloat in the first half, and in the second half was able to uh, you know, carry that on. And uh, Steph Curry came along for the ride in the second half as well. Um, and uh, yeah, the Warriors pretty much ripped the soul out of the Blazers pretty much in game three with that with that comeback, giving them pretty much no hope. Damian Lillard tried to do too much, uh, started to try to do too much in that fourth quarter to uh, avert uh, the Warriors' plans, but it did not work out, and the Blazers are down 3 nothing, and um, they are going to lose the series <laughs> if, if history uh, dictates every, anything since no team has come back from a 3-0 deficit. So enough of me talking. I've talked a lot. Uh, Vikram, just tell me your, give me, give me your thoughts on this series. And uh, where do the Blazers go from here? Where do the Warriors go from here? So, I'll be honest. My guess is the Warriors are going to destroy this team. <laughs> They're already destroying them. I mean, it's, it's... so honestly, I, I I really feel like the Warriors in this series have uh, turned back the clock to the 2015-2016 season. Hmm. Uh, that's not to say you know they're better without KD or anything like that, but. Uh, I think what ends up happening when, just from a schematic perspective, is when they have KD, they run their first action. If the first action doesn't work out, they give it to KD and KD creates something because that is usually the best option. But the difference with the Warriors now is they have to run their second and third actions, which means they're running around even more than usual, uh, which means, once again, for the Blazers, they're in a little bit of trouble because now they have to run around with uh, with Steph and Clay all the time. And Dame Lillard was talking about that in uh, in the last game that you know he's got to play defense. He's tired, but everybody's tired at this point of the year. The other thing I'd mention is when Kevon Looney fell on Dame Lillard in in Game Three, he actually suffered something called separated ribs. Separated ribs, yeah. I'm not exactly sure what exactly that means. I'm not 100 percent on that. Uh, I don't really know, and I was listening to the Dunked On podcast, and they were saying something similar, like, what exactly does separated ribs mean? Is it like a cartilage issue? Whatever it is. Probably need to bring bring on, bring on a doctor as a guest on the podcast next yeah, week. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> if any of our listeners are doctors, we'd love to hear from you about what the heck separated ribs are. That would be uh, that would be really helpful, actually. So, you know, that's, uh, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing I would say is, the Trailblazers are letting really, really good opportunities to win games just go to waste. You know, you can't be up 15 and 18 and then let the Warriors just blitz you. I mean, that to me is is pretty absurd. But I will say uh, Damian Lillard is really struggling in the series. At a point in Game 3, he had had more 
made or he had more turnovers than made field goals in the series. He's really been struggling. The Warriors defensive scheme is kind of similar to what the the Pelicans ran at the Blazers last year where they were doubling hard on uh on Dame Lillard and what the series is revealing to me is that Dame Lillard is a good to even very good passer but not a great passer. And the way that the Warriors operate when you don't make the sharpest of passes uh, they're long enough and athletic enough to recover and take away those passing lanes. They're just too long, too smart to let you know bad play go. So I think that's the biggest thing I've seen in games two and three in terms of their comeback is the defensive pressure that they've put on. And we got to give a lot of credit to Draymond Green for basically owning the series. Yeah, basically owning the post All Star break. You know, apparently losing that weight. You know, he's so much more explosive. He's so much quicker getting on guards. I, I've just been so impressed with what he's done. And without him, they weren't going to be in the game how, yesterday. How he's able to recover on the pick and roll is is still mind-boggling to me. Like, really. It's it's insane. 100%. It is absolutely unconscionable how good he is as a player. And, and not only that, not only on defense, but on offense, he was really pushing the pace and really forcing the issue. And whenever I saw Draymond push the pace, I was like, oh, Draymond, don't do something stupid now. Don't don't like brick a layoff layup off the glass. But he would always he, he always made those in game, especially in game three. Right. He was like pushing the pace, forcing the issue and he was converting on the shots. And that really put pressure on the Blazers defense. Like oh, we have now oh, we have to run back on defense. And now they're forgetting Steph and Clay on the three point line. And that's pretty much what happened in the second half. Like. Steph was getting open threes in transition because they were afraid of Draymond Green penetrating and scoring in the lane. And I also think what Draymond Green was doing that's most significant is he was turning, you know, transition, like non-transition opportunities into semi-transition opportunities by just pushing. Absolutely. And that resulted in, in not only assists and buckets, but also getting other players involved. Like he absolutely got Jordan Bell that open dunk. Yes. After Jordan Bell missed that open dunk. But he, he gave him another open dunk. And I think one of the things that really has to be stated, and Doris Burke was talking about it after uh, after the game, was the leadership that Draymond Green is showing, You know, encouraging the team, making sure that they're playing defense. He is the heart and soul of the Warriors, and he's proving it right now. Absolutely. You, I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. And I think I think it was mic'd up for that exchange with Jordan Bell, right? When, once he missed the first dunk, he was like, hey— uh, I miss shots. Steph missed shots. Everybody misses shots. Don't don't worry about it. Just you know, move on to the next play. And lo and behold, Jordan Bell did, and he he got another transition hoop. By the way, Jordan Bell he he's shown great energy in the series. I I, I must I, I must come out and say that. Uh, and and yeah, the and it's because of that energy that the the Warriors are up three uh, nothing on the Blazers, and the Blazers pretty much look demoralized. I mean, in games one and two, and his canter started at center, and his inability to guard the pick and roll pretty much led to uh, the Blazers having to make a change and starting Myers Leonard at center. And um, Myers Leonard was having a really, really good first half, like almost almost coming out of nowhere, creating a, creating a storyline for himself, uh, a podium so, moment. Let me, let me put it this way. Yeah. I don't know that they swapped out Cantor for his defense. I think the main... Because Myers Leonard, I think, is actually a worse defender than Ennis Cantor. So I think that's actually the funny part. But I think the main reason they put... Uh, Myers Leonard in was twofold. One, because he gives you a stretch element uh, outside of what Collins or Cantor is going to give you. It's, Collins can hit a three, and he definitely hit a three. I, in the I, I think it's much easier to make a pass off the pick and pop than the pick and roll. 
So the other thing is Myers Leonard is a better playmaker than uh, than Ennis Cantor and Zach Holland. So that's definitely one other reason that they did that. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest overall reason that they they made the change was that let Ennis Cantor start the second or start the second quarter when Steph's when not Steph was in. on the bench. Yeah, yeah, and I mean like yeah. that's super significant. That lineup with uh, with Collins and uh, and Cantor killed the Warriors, and I'm actually surprised that Terry Stotts didn't go to this. So like that was really weird to me. I don't know why he he went away from that. So like that's uh, that's my biggest question as to why he went away from that uh, from that lineup in uh, in like the fourth quarter of the game. So uh, I, I don't uh, I do not know the plus minus of all the lineups, but uh, that, that lineup, that lineup probably had extraordinarily well because yeah. you know the the Trailblazers were up by thirteen going into the half, right? Yeah, and their lead was due in no small part to that lineup. So that was a little confusing to me. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what the game is. I, I don't quite understand it, but, you know, I'm going to give Terry Stotts the benefit of the doubt. Uh, although they are down 3-0, so maybe I shouldn't give him that benefit of the doubt. But I, I just think the Blazers had no realistic chance coming into the series, and the Warriors are, are showing us why they're championship contenders every year and have been champions for the last two years and have made it to the finals the last four years. I mean... <laughs> yeah. It's kind of there there's a reason why. And let's let's be honest, the Blazers are probably what the fourth best team in the West. And uh they they've managed to make it this far and that's a credit to them, but you know, at some point you got to play the Warriors. So, do the Warriors yeah. finish it off Monday night? I they should, but I could totally see Dame and CJ being too proud to to let them get swept. And Andre Iguodala is hurt as well. I think it's like a lower leg injury or something like that. He's questionable. Yeah, it's supposed to be his uh, his Achilles is sore. I know. Yeah. Well, Which, uh, sounds whether or not that will make a difference. Uh, I guess we'll see the lineups on on Monday and we'll, we'll watch the game. Uh, I I fully expect the Warriors to either finish it off in four or five, five being the max. And uh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. I mean that's the, that's the end of that series, and the Warriors get a nice long rest uh, before the NBA Finals. So um, good for them. And uh, they probably need it because they have a lot of injured guys. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is they're they're pretty banged up. Yeah, and pretty banged up and pretty tired too, given the amount of energy they've expended uh, to finish off the the Rocket series and to and in this Trailblazer series as well. Uh, there's a lot of effort expended there. So with that, we're going to move on to the Eastern Conference Final series, and that series is between the Raptors and the Bucks. So. Um, in game one uh, of the series, game one was actually really interesting because uh, the Bucks were struggling shooting from the field. And um, the Raptors pretty much had a golden opportunity, really, to steal game one away because uh, of the Bucks' poor shooting. But, I mean, lo, lo and behold, I, mean, I don't want to say the Raptors folded, but the Bucks started to turn it on. And uh, I, don't, I, I don't know how to put this very subtly, but the Bucks have balls. And they they will execute the game plan, uh, whatever it takes. Even if things are not working well, they'll keep they they'll keep playing. And that's I think that's really a credit to the to, to the coaching staff, especially Mike Budenholzer, for instilling that mentality in them. And they play like a true team when it counts. And that's pretty much what happened in, in game one. They they pretty much stole the game from the Raptors and never let the Raptors uh, recover from that. Um, 
I think Kawhi Leonard had a good game, and also Kyle Lowry had a good game. So uh, that that was an opportunity for the Raptors to to win, and they did not win. And, and they figured out why uh, the Bucks are the much more superior team in Game Two when the Bucks pretty much blitzed them, and and took the game right away from them from the start, and pretty much demoralized the Raptors into thinking that like uh, maybe we're not as good as we thought we were, but. Uh, then the Raptors come back home in Game Three, and again the Bucks are not having the best game. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo was m- pretty much in foul trouble the entire game. He ended up fouling out in the in the second overtime and only had twelve points. So that's pretty much it. Pretty much shows how, what kind of a game he was having. Kawhi Leonard was again had had a, one of his MVP moments, you could say, and had had a tremendous tremendous game, uh, but. Really, the story of the game is really, uh, despite Giannis having a bad game, the Bucks were still able to stay in the game on the road, and it just shows the number of weapons that the Bucks have and the number of different players they can throw at you in different moments. And uh, I don't know if the Raptors can ever beat the Bucks on their best night. So that it really comes down to that for me. And uh, Vikram, I'm just going to let you take it away and give your thoughts. So I'll be honest. I think the Raptors in uh, in games one and three overperformed my expectations for them. I think the Bucks are just the much better team. I, I don't think there's any better way to put it than that. They're just the better team. They have more weapons. Their team actually has an identity on offense and defense. Uh, my biggest problem with the Raptors so far has been they've typically got nothing out of their role players. Tonight was an exception. Norm Powell balled out. I have no idea where that came from. Marcus All played well for the first Marcus time in a Saul long time. Well. Yeah, for the first time in the series. And so, you know, things like that are really what the Raptors need. But the Bucks just look like a much deeper team. You know, game one heroes, Brooke Lopez. Game two, everybody basically killed the Raptors. I mean, I think the problem for the Raptors is for them to win, it takes an off night from the other team and a pretty good performance from their team. So I think overall, that's uh, that's a little problematic. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's pretty much the same sentiment I have. Um, what about George Hill, dude? George Hill has been playing amazing in these playoffs. He's dude, probably the best. Bad. He's probably the best point guard for the second consecutive series. Seriously, he is playing. I think he's playing the best basketball of his career right now. I don't think he's ever played better than this. That, that's probably true, and that's probably why. I mean, George Hill was taking minutes away from Eric Bledsoe in overtime, and rightfully so thing. because Eric Bledsoe, for for the effort he puts in on defense and he he puts in a lot of effort, he he's sort of lackadaisical on offense, quite frankly, and uh, and and George Hill brings more stability there, quite frankly. So oh so, yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. Uh, and George Hill is a better shooter, like just flat out, and sometimes that's what you need. Uh, the other thing I wanted to remark is Malcolm Brogdon looks great. Yeah, he does. Not just physically, but like that shot's starting to go in. His conditioning never suffered because of that injury. Yeah, or, I, have no, I don't know what the hell his uh, his game plan is, but he's doing good stuff, and I'm pretty happy watching that. Uh, he's looked great. Uh, I actually think Giannis looked the worst tonight. I don't know. Uh, that, that's kind of sad, and it's a little bit of an indictment, but, you know. I, I mean, like, I, the the Raptors pretty much built a wall around Giannis and never let him never never let him get involved really and and Giannis he was a little passive I would say like he he looked to pass uh, more than he usually does but so it kind of reminds me of uh, uh it reminded me of the first game against the Celtics 
Oh yeah, where, that's that's right. That's right. Where he really did he was he was put in some form of difficulty by that team. And I think this was kind of similar in that they built that wall really concentrated on preventing him from uh, from executing what he wanted to do. So I think that's the big thing that the Raptors are going to have to continue to do if they have any hope in the series. But, you know, I don't think it's going to be particularly close. Uh, from here on out, I might be wrong, but I think the Bucks are going to take the next game, and then I think the series is over. But if the Raptors can win the next game, they can make this a series. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, I always tell my dad like every game starts off at zero zero. Absolutely. Every game is a new game. At, at least if you're not like mentally damaged by the previous game, the previous game should have little to no bearing on what happens in in the current game. Right. You, I mean, you just go roll in with your players and and see what happens. I think the Bucks had that mentality after game one of the previous series against the Celtics. Like every game is a new game. We just have to go out there and show show what we have. And I think uh, when all when push comes to shove, the Bucks are really uh, the better team in this series, particularly. But even in the NBA finals, they're they're starting to, you know, there's people are starting to raise questions are the Bucks better than the Warriors, even with Kevin Durant. So I think the problem with this is, uh, I think that's undervaluing what the Warriors have done in the past four years. That's true. And, and I, I completely agree with you, but the fact that they have done it in over the past four years and they have gone to the finals in the past four years. And they, I mean, they, I mean, they, they're carrying a lot of weight. Whereas the Bucks are coming in, they're this young upstart team. They've never been this far. They supposedly have fresh legs. They don't have many significant injuries to talk about. And yeah, they, I mean, there, there they are, and they're they're the number one defensive team in the league, just like the Warriors were back in the day, right? So they share a lot of similar traits. Sure, I I just think the one thing with the Bucks is, and I think the Warriors are gonna are have good personnel to defend them. First of all. But That's the biggest thing is the Bucks are based on one player's unique talent in Giannis. If Steve Kerr can figure out a schematic way to take him away, uh, I think they're going to play pretty well. And you can you already see the Raptors doing this, right? Like, like the Raptors may not be the great. I mean, they should be a really good defensive team. But what the Raptors are essentially doing is say anybody but Giannis beat us. And to this point, that's worked. But right now, you're seeing that. Well, they were able to take a game that way, right? A poor Giannis performance. The other players really didn't beat you. You let Kawhi be somewhat efficient, and you were able to win that game. So, I mean, if that strategy works for the Raptors, why wouldn't it work for the Warriors? That's that's really true. And uh, we haven't really seen the Bucks challenged that often in these playoffs. Like, I, w- I would love to see the Bucks if they get, if they get challenged for like two consecutive games, and it's they're really close games for two consecutive games. How? Uh, like how how they would react to that situation because really they're they're miles above any other team in the Eastern Conference. Like we've 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 seen this right. So when when they go up against the Warriors, who are they're a formidable opponent. I don't think anyone doubts that. But uh, if they have to play uh, close games and they have to go mano a mano, and their best performance is the only thing that's going to win, what's going to happen? Can they still go six for thirty uh, from three point range? through three quarters against the Warriors and still have a chance to win that game. I think the Warriors offense is drastically better than what 
than what the Raptors are putting on the floor in almost every conceivable way. That's true. And you could say the same thing for the Celtics as well. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, that, that's pretty much our, our thoughts on the series. I, I agree with you. I think I think the Bucks take Game Four and uh, take Game Five. I think the series is over in five, just just based on what we've seen. But yeah, like you said, if the if the Raptors can can somehow win Game Four, then then it's two two. Then it's then it's a brand new series, and you're putting the Bucks in yet another position that they have not been in yet. So, and the Bucks have responded well to these. Like, don't don't get me wrong. They 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 have that championship DNA mentality. If that makes any sense. Well, they got the feel of a championship. They, they got the feel of a champion. There you go. Yeah. They they remind me a lot of the Warriors in the, in that sense, right? They they got that feel of a champion. They don't they they don't uh, crumble under pressure. They they thrive in it a little bit. So I mean, we'll, we'll see. This will be this will be a, uh, a test in the multiple tests the Bucks face uh, going forward in these playoffs. But uh, with that, uh, we're done talking about that series for now, and uh, we're gonna go on to the NBA draft lottery. Wow, <laughs> what what a TV event, right? Especially with the with the odds pretty much all evened up or normalized, really, like we really don't know who's going to win the lottery going going into the the TV event that the NBA draft lottery has become, and and because of that, uh, it has created great suspense as to which teams are going to move up. No one would have predicted that the Pelicans and Grizzlies would be the top two picks going in, and I mean when when it happened, it was like oh my god, holy crap. And of course, that the Knicks and Lakers got in, got in as well. So that added extra intrigue. Like, oh, these big market teams are are in that party as well. But uh, Vikram, just give me your thoughts on how the draft lottery took place in your mind, and um, yeah, well, how what does this mean for the NBA in terms of marketability? So I think it's a good decision to you know, like it makes it a lot more uncertain about who's going to get the first pick, right? But I don't think this is going to eliminate systemic tanking. It's not. And so the main reason, and I think people have to understand this, like, yes, it is totally true that the Pelicans and uh, the Grizzlies being the one and two pick was an unexpected, uh, improbable result. So that's totally true. But the thing that I want people to understand is relative odds are still a thing. Like, 14% is better than 2%. So there's still value in being, you know, the worst team in the NBA. So in that sense, like, there's still an incentive to tank. Uh, so the idea that I think Rudy Gobert said the age of tanking is over, it, it's definitely not over because it's still a far superior outcome uh, when you have the worst record. There's just not as much incentive to be the worst record versus the second worst versus the third worst. There's still an incentive to be the, one of the worst teams in the league. So, like, uh, like you may if, not if, if, if you're if you're the worst team in the league, you're guaranteed a top five pick, right? Yeah, I that, believe you can call no worse than fifth. No I worse believe. than fifth, exactly. So that in and of itself will will not eliminate tanking, but uh, if nothing else, it makes watching the lottery a fun event. Yes, it is definitely fun to watch now, and yeah. it, it's been a very enjoyable experience overall. Uh, it, it has been fun. I don't think we can take that away. <laughs> it, it is extremely entertaining that the Pelicans got the first pick because uh, you know it totally destroys the whole Anthony Davis trade scenarios. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, kind of funny. I mean, I like. I, I remember right, and this coincides with history a lot because right after Chris Paul got traded, the Pelicans got the number one pick and they picked Anthony Davis, their next franchise player. Now Anthony Davis is pretty much about to get traded, 
and they get the number one pick, which is another uh, marquee franchise player. Since like he's probably the best franchise player to come out of the draft since Anthony Davis. And I then, think that's correct. And, and uh, excuse me, I I said I think that's correct. Yeah, and that's Zion Williamson. Oh so, yeah. Uh, the, the fact that it happened and, and it couldn't happen to a better better guy, David Griffin. The David dude, Griffin the, is a is a great front office staff guy. Like he is fantastic. Not only does he bring his you know GM experience, he brings in. You know, great understanding of staff, great understanding of players, great understanding of basically how to run a franchise. And he's very good at playing with superstars. And I fully believe Zion Williamson at his worst is going to be uh, a good all-star. And at his best is going to be, you know, MVP caliber. So he's going to, he is, David Griffin is a good GM for that scenario. So I'm very happy for the direction the Pelicans franchise is going in. Uh, there's some other really cool stuff that they're doing in terms of upgrading their facilities, their training staff, stuff like that that really shows that their ownership with Gail Benson is taking a step forward in terms of uh, how the franchise is going. So and, I'm and, really and, happy for them. Yeah, and this is such a relief to me personally because uh, we always thought that the Pelicans' uh, lease was expiring in, in, in the sense that, you know, right after Anthony Davis gets traded, who is coming to the Pelicans' games? You, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, and we've, we've talked about this at length on, on previous podcast episodes. Like, when are the Bensons going to sell the Pelicans? Because, and, and that's a very valid question because New Orleans, and Bikram, believe me, New Orleans is a football town. They love oh, their yeah. football. They love their Saints more more than they love their Pelicans. And, I mean, that, that's not a knock on the Pelicans. That's just That just shows what kind of a place New Orleans is. So, it, right after, if they traded Anthony, if they never got the number one pick, right? And they traded Anthony Davis. It's The, the question starts to become, uh, what are the Pelicans coming, I mean, what are the Pelicans fans coming to the games for, right? And empty arenas for two or three consecutive seasons could put a hamper on the franchise that is very unforgiving in the sense that now uh, maybe the franchise own, moves. other yeah the franchise move other owners start to inquire about what's going on with the Pelicans and the Pelicans get owned by the NBA again and then uh, uh, someone in Seattle is like hey we got this new arena in Seattle why don't you come play here and uh, the rest is history so that's, that's totally so awesome. this this extends their lease in New Orleans because now there's a reason for them to be in New Orleans now. Exactly. Uh, the other thing I would say is I don't know that there's too many better fits in terms of coaching for Zion than Alvin Gentry, who is who has really revolutionized what bigs do. Absolutely. So I think that's right. a really good fit for uh, for Zion Williamson, especially in the past couple years where he's had to deal with Demarcus and Anthony Davis bringing the ball up. Like he's going to have a lot of freedom in New Orleans and a system that tries to take advantage of his unique talent. So I think from a coaching perspective too, it's a win-win outcome for him and for the, you know, for the NBA. Like people forget yeah. Alvin Gentry is responsible for why the Warriors are so good in offense. Oh yeah. He is, he is definitely a big piece of why they are good. So I, I think that's definitely true. Yeah. I just, and, and, and I'm glad David Griffin decided to, you know, keep keep him on as coach and, and Pelicans organization as well. Just to like because Alvin Gentry is not a bad coach. He's a, he's a great coach. He's just been dealt a very unforgiving hand, and uh, I'm I'm glad that he's finally getting the opportunity. So, um, moving on, not not moving on, but like now, what do the Pelicans do with Anthony Davis? He still uh, reportedly still wants to be traded, and um, I personally think that they have to trade him during the draft because that is when you get the most for Anthony Davis. And uh, the question is now, 
if you're David Griffin, what do you want? Do you want more picks or do you want more players or young players? Uh, I would take players. Definitely players at this junction because this draft isn't that great. Yeah, that's. I think who can give you the best package of draft assets or draft assets plus young players is your is your go to plan. Uh, I don't think the Celtics are going to be in this very much. Yeah, especially if they lose Kyrie. I think the two yeah. candidates that have been uh, brought upon brought upon uh, pretty often are uh, the Knicks and the Lakers. And uh, the Clippers. And uh, oh yeah, and 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 the Clippers. But I I think the Clippers are a distant third in this. Maybe maybe if they offer Shea. Gilgis Alexander. Yeah, so the then idea you start is to you talk. Get a, the, the idea is the offer Shea and Shamit plus you know whatever you gotta oh have. My God. Shea and Shamit, my God, I, I uh, those are two role players I really love. Yeah, I just you know I think people are a little a little too high on Shea. Maybe I'm wrong, but like I don't. I mean I think he's good and he's gonna be a really good player. I don't think he's gonna be a great player. Well, yeah, I mean I, yeah, and and those that's the type of thing that we'll we'll see. Um, but, uh, so the, the difference between the Lakers and the Knicks picks, Knicks, uh, packages rather, the Lakers are offering a lot of youthful players Yeah, and, I, and the Knicks I are think, offering a lot of picks. So I don't think the Knicks picks are, you know, that great. I don't think that the Knicks have any players that really give me, you know, that, that give me the warm and fuzzies. So to be honest, the Knicks I definitely don't, don't have a lot of players who give me, give you the warm fuzzies. I think the best package is going to be the Lakers package at this point. I, I would think so too. And you know, people are like overblowing this Brandon Ingram DVT kind of thing. It looks like it's supposed to have like some two or three percent chance of being able to come back. It wasn't like a super severe form of it, like uh, the way Chris Bosh had. So I mean, I, I don't know why people are so low on the Lakers offer, but I think Brandon Ingram plus Lonzo Ball plus a Kuzma or whatever the package is of those young players plus the fourth pick is pretty compelling to me. Yeah, like, I, I, I don't know why people are the, so low on the it. the only thing uh, about the Lakers package that gives me that gives me pause is that uh, their second contracts are coming up soon. Brandon Ingram's contract is coming up soon. Lonzo Ball's uh, I think about only a year behind him. So I mean, you you start to give give all these players their second contracts. All, all of a sudden, you're sort of bloated salary wise. You still have Drew Holiday there. So I, I again, like I mean, it, it depends what what kind what type of flavor do you like? And J, J, David Griffin has. I mean, his idea of what what he wants, whether he wants to develop young players who are already in the league, or you know, sort of draft his own team, and that'll be that'll be his choice. But I definitely do think they should trade Anthony Davis on draft day, and if they don't, that will be a major failure. Not um, and not only because now you have to w- sort of wait, uh, wait out free agency before you before you trade him, but. Uh, if you end up trading him uh, during the off during the trade deadline, or just letting him go, then uh, that will be a huge loss, I would think. Oh yeah, I I mean, there's no conceivable way that I think they keep Anthony Davis on unless they're really trying to like convince him that he wants to stay in New Orleans, and I just don't see that as a, a really convincing scenario. I think I think he he's a really good jump start to your rebuilding that you're trying to do right if you if let's say you you kept anthony davis and you you made him play with zion for one year and, and then he leaves anyway now you now you now totally you, lost everything yeah like, you, now you lost everything now you have to rebuild around around zion with pretty much drew holiday and and crap <laughs> that's that, that's basically the situation that you'll be in and you don't want to waste zion as well 
Like, I mean, you saw with Anthony Davis's career with the Pelicans went by quicker than you would think, right? Those nine years, they they flew by. They really, it really did, and you don't want to waste even a single year of Zion. I am one hundred percent on you on uh, with you on that. I just think uh, they're going to have to to do a better job this time with Zion. You know, I hope they learn the lessons from what they did poorly with Anthony Davis and are able to recover. And, uh, and I mean, they got a new, I mean, Dell Demps was the GM for that transition from Chris Paul to Anthony Davis. Now they got a new GM for the transition from Anthony Davis to who of to Zion and that that's David Griffin. And uh, I, I see, I tend to have uh, a lot more confidence in him than I did in Dell Demps. So uh, we'll see. And just a side note, uh, Gail Benson did, uh, I, I, I reportedly, she did say that uh, uh, I will trade Anthony Davis to the Lakers over my dead body. So I, well, I, I she also had to come out and say that that wasn't the case that she said that. Oh, really? She did. So yeah, <laughs> she's. I mean, that was something that she said. Right? I mean, it like, sounded a bit ridiculous, and I'm glad she she came out and cleared the record there. But, and to be honest, there's no way to verify that unless they actually trade him to the Lakers, right? Like, sure. Then you know it's false. Otherwise, you have no idea whether or not that actually happened. But you know, that aside, I just think. I think the Pelicans would be really foolish to overlook the Lakers' offer because I do think it's the best offer. They shouldn't overlook any offer. Yeah, I, I just, you know, if it's not the Lakers, it's got to be some dark horse team because Celtics aren't really going to put their, their best players or assets on the table, I don't think. All right. Yeah. And the Dave's not going to stay there for without Kyrie. So, you know, from that perspective, I don't know why he would. I mean, just looking up and down the board, I think the Clippers package could be intriguing. And a lot of people seem to think that that might be the package they end up going with. And, you know, a Kawhi-Anthony Davis pairing, that could be interesting. That could, that could be really interesting. And, uh, I mean, we'll see what happens. But let's let's just go down the list very quickly. Grizzlies with the number two pick, they are probably picking Ja, and that will be the replacement of Mike Conley. And, and good for the Grizzlies that they, they, they got their replacement quickly, and they can now comfortably move on from Mike Conley. And they should move on from Mike Conley at absolutely. this point. Uh, absolutely. On draft day, again, if they don't trade Mike Conley on draft day, something's terribly wrong. And, and well, you know, they could keep him to be a mentor kind of guy for a little uh, bit. I just don't think it's the point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you... Uh, I think you just, you just trade him. I mean, on, on draft day, that that's the day where you can get draft assets, the draft assets that you want, right? If... If the Grizzlies still want two first-round picks, I don't know if they're going to get two first-round picks on even on draft day. But you stand a better shot giving getting it on draft day than any other day during the yeah, during I mean, the offseason. That's true. I just don't know what uh, Mike Conley's return value really is going to be. Uh, but it does. It really has expanded the their ability to move him by being able to pick drop because now they can go to teams. Uh, that don't necessarily have a point guard to give you back in return, and you can it just broadens the the possible field of targets. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think that was uh, that that's important for them. I still think a team like the Jazz or the Pacers that could really use an upgraded point guard could dude, take use uh, could take advantage of Michael Conley being uh, available. So I think that's really the direction that the Grizzlies are going to go with that, but. Uh, we'll see if their pick next year conveys or not. Uh, it's top six protected, so we'll see if it conveys next year. Uh, they might be better next year than this year, but I'm not. You know, rookie point guards are never that good. So I think they try uh, to. I think they try to make their com- pick convey this year itself, given the quality of the draft. But they ended up going to number two. So yeah, I, I, I mean, know, that's, that's a win. That's They'd a, rather that, have- that is a win because you get Ja. 
right? Oh, yeah. And, and I think they're very happy to have him. And uh, this is, I mean, it, it's... For me personally, it's it's Zion and Ja and maybe RJ Burrett and then the rest, right? So I mean, if you're in New York and LA, they are probably looking to trade their pick for Anthony Davis or whoever else comes up on the market. Uh, and um, really, I don't I don't see them being really thrilled with drafting the player here. But if they do draft a player, they would probably be a part of their rotation going forward. But on draft day, what what's the storyline you're looking forward? to to watching on draft day i really want to see what the hell the celtics do they have too many picks they have more picks than roster spot you know what i mean at this point like yeah i don't i have no idea what the celtics are going to do uh i think that for all of the bright future that it appeared they had at the end of last year uh, i think i like what the nets have better than what the celtics have right now you said that last week and i know and it's pretty sad isn't it yeah I, <laughs> I I agree. They 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 sort of mismanaged the situation by like hoarding all their picks, and then and then other teams are like, okay, fine, take players. We're not stopping you from taking a player in the twenties and not not playing him, and then so having the to problem, cut him, and then. Uh, yeah, so here's the stuck. problem, right? Yeah, picks are valuable because they're cost controlled contracts and all that kind of stuff. But once picks become players, they lose a lot of value because you know exactly what you're getting. Exactly with, with the trade. So unless you unless you nailed those picks and the Celtics did not nail those picks. Yeah, I mean, you know, they've done they did good with the Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. But outside of that and the, you know, Terry Rozier, but outside of that, like with the large number of picks they've had, they've had some duds in there. You know, the semi Ojales, the Yabuseles, RJ Hunters. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's plenty of examples of, uh, of poor drafting by them and. I just don't know what they're going to do with their middling picks this year. You know, it's like 15 and eight. I, I don't remember exactly where they are on the uh, on the pick list. If you've got that up, where are they picking in the first round? OK, so they're they're picking 14, 20 and 22. I mean, I don't know what the hell you're going to do with any of those picks. That's true. Seriously, 14 might be a, might be a borderline pick. Maybe you get a rotation guy. But 20 and 22, I don't see those guys making the roster, quite frankly. Not for the Celtics, at least. Not I for mean, the Celtics. Yeah, this guess, feels like you've got to trade. Yeah, you gotta, trade like all you, three you got to find a way to trade those. The, I'd the, trade all three of them, somehow, some way. I don't know what the hell they would do, but I would I would find some somehow, some way to trade all three of those picks. For for something of value, right? Because Something, yeah, I mean. And, and and for me personally, the story and that's a that's a great storyline to look for. For me personally, it's how far does Bo Bo fall? And we've talked about this at length off the air, right? How far does Bo Bo go before somebody takes him? I personally, I do not see him falling past twenty. Dude, I think with the uh... and it'll all depend on medical, and we. Uh, we probably do not get access to any of that information. Whatever access that we get, it's like from sources that that talk uh, on Twitter and and so forth. But me personally, I do not see Bobo falling past past twenty. If Bobo falls past twenty, that means something's really wrong with this medical. Dude, I'm gonna tell you, I uh, as long you know if his medical checks out in terms of he'll heal, you know I would really love to see him in Atlanta. Can you imagine how much fun that would be? Oh my god. And, and and Atlanta, they have they had the eighth or the ten pick. They have the Which other player are you going to draft with that pick? That's what I'm saying, man. That's not going to have the, that's going to have the potential of bull bull. 
I, like, I would like, take Bull Bull if I was Atlanta. They got two bites of the you, apple. Take one, man. Yeah, take you, one for sure. You either are getting a rotation player, or you're getting Bull Bull. Like you, you have to weigh the cost benefit analysis here. If you're if you're Atlanta, right? If you if you if you take a, a player other than Bull Bull, let's just say, right, and that player becomes a rotation player. Okay, that's that's great, right? But if you take Bull Bull and he becomes a star and he's a center and he fits perfectly with 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 John Collins, right in the in the front court, and it becomes a pick and pop partner with Trey Young. Like people are saying, like Bull Bull is the best shooter in this draft, and I don't disagree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I when I watched him shoot, he's got amazing amazing form exactly i mean i'm excited to see what he can do in the nba i agree with you that's a hell of a sport if you're you're atlanta you if bobo for some reason is not ready to play this year don't worry about it who cares yeah you want to be bad still i mean like Like, exactly i mean they're projected you know right now to take like cam reddish is supposed to fall to eight that would be something nice can you imagine your lineup, your your good starting five lineup is Trey Young, Kevin Herter, Cam Reddish, uh, John Collins, Collins, and then Bull Bull. And then Bull Bull. <laughs> Let me say shooting from every position and uh, lots and lots of fun. So, you know, I, I think that the Hawks have a really bright future. Uh, they're another team that's been run pretty well, so I'm, I'm excited for them. Uh, the funny news, did you hear the funny news out of L.A. where they're not going to hire another president of basketball operations yeah and it's funny based on your perspective i guess but uh, it's, i mean i i love the lakers but you know i've heard it's the uh, the brain trust of uh palinka and the rambi that are going to be making <laughs> rambi <laughs> yeah that's the thing dude i i didn't come up with that oh my god but i think it's kind of funny it, it is it is very funny and uh, uh i'll just say this regarding that raw palinka does not have a good reputation in this league and it's been it's very very apparent, and I do not know how the Lakers are going to ever be players in negotiations with, with regards to trades, with regards to signing other people. If Rob Palenka is the face of all of that, I'll just say that and and leave it at that. Sure, yeah, I, I you know, probably fair. And I mean, uh, see. and with that, uh, can we wrap up this episode, Vikram? Yeah, man, I think we covered a lot of good ground. We 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 definitely did, and. Uh, yeah, uh, you can always uh, download our podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Play and subscribe as well for uh, updates on our episodes. And uh, again, you can always email us questions at uh, ballisticpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we do check that in- inbox. And uh, whenever we do get questions, we will um, basically answer them on the air. And uh, with that, that is the end of our episode. Uh, for Vikram, I'm Guru. We'll talk to you guys soon.